God, we are so thankful for Jesus. And when we stop and think about all that he is and all that he has done for us, he is so much better than what we could have ever dreamed of. Lord, I pray for those who are in this room, those who are listening online, who need to meet him today. I pray, God, that you would generously give them faith to believe and to see his beauty and his power and his greatness. And Lord, I pray for others of us who need to be reminded of his greatness, who need a a deeper experience of all that he is. So God, I pray that you would meet us exactly where we are today. You know all of our needs. You know all of our burdens. You know exactly what we need. So God, would you meet us there with Jesus? Help us to see him. And Lord, I pray you give us wisdom as we think about what contentment really is today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A mirage is one of nature's cruelest and coolest illusions. I'm sure we've all seen those movies where there's a particular movie scene uh, where the character finds himself in a desert, and he's hot, he's exhausted, and he's about ready to give up. And he looks out into the distance of the desert, and he sees what appears to be a body of water. This body of water is inviting him to come and to drink and to uh, find uh, um, satisfaction and to be replenished by this water. And yet what we uh, end up seeing is that this character moves closer and closer to what he thought was a pool of water only to discover that there's nothing there at all. In fact, there was nothing there even to begin with. It was simply a mirage. I think if we were really honest this morning, that really describes many of our experiences in thinking about trying to attain contentment. That we can so easily relate to that movie scene of being that character. As we travel through this life, we are exhausted. And we so desperately are looking to this pool of contentment to find satisfaction and to find a sense of replenishment. And yet what tends to happen as we pursue contentment is that the closer and closer we get to it, it seems to just slip through our fingers. I think one of the reasons why contentment feels so elusive at times is because we tend to misunderstand it. That we're living in a world that uses words like contentment and satisfaction and fulfillment, but uses it differently than the scriptures. And so it ends up creating confusion in our own hearts and our own minds. Just as there's a disconnect about what's real in a mirage, so too there's a a disconnect between what contentment actually is. This is why I think Philippians 4 is really helpful for us. Philippians 4 is a passage really about contentment. Paul not only describes what it is, but even in his own life, he embodies this whole concept. And so today we're going to kind of travel through this passage and look at what contentment is all about. And I don't know about you, but for me, when I'm trying to figure out what something is, it's, it's oftentimes helpful to first begin with what it's not. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're actually going to look at four myths of contentment before we look at Philippians 4. And here's the first myth that I think is really popular, really dangerous as we think about contentment, and that is contentment is circumstantial. It's circumstantial. This myth says that I need to have the right circumstances happy circumstances or easy circumstances in order to be content. And for a lot of people, you can see that their happiness just reflects their circumstances, that they're almost like these thermometers whose happiness temperature is created by the condition that they're in 
rather than being thermostats whose happiness temperature is created by something outside of their conditions and circumstances. And this false belief leads us to conclude that contentment is not a lasting reality, but it's something that comes and goes depending on our circumstances. And I think that we can become restless, even empty, frustrated at times, because we oftentimes believe that my circumstances have to be a certain way in order for us to be content. And I want to push back on that this morning, because I think we put way too much stock on our circumstances in determining our level of contentment. And within that, there are two sides of our circumstances that we need to be careful of. Side number one is, of course, when our circumstances are bad, they're unwanted, they're hard, we tend to think to ourselves, okay, that's why I'm not content. I need to change my circumstances in order to be satisfied. Okay, that's one side of it. But then there's another side of it where we might have good circumstances in our lives, happy circumstances, easy circumstances, and yet over time, there still is a level of dissatisfaction if we were really honest. Even with the perfect circumstances in life, there's a level of discontentment that you and I feel and experience because we were not made for this world. And so we tend to even say in those circumstances, I need to improve my circumstances. That's the issue. I need to increase uh, the good things in my life in order to be content. And so because our circumstances are always changing, our level of contentment is always changing. I have found this to be true in my own life. I sometimes feel like contentment is like this moving target. You know, when I'm trying to pursue satisfaction in life, And that's oftentimes because the source that I'm looking for to creating contentment is moving because it's in my circumstances. And I think this is why it's easy to fall into that someday mentality of life. We looked at this last week. The someday mentality of life says that I'm not content right now, but someday I will be. When I change my circumstances, someday when I find that spouse, I'll be content. Or someday when I have kids or well-behaved kids, I'll be content. Or someday when I have that job or the finances or that body shape or whatever the case may be, then I will be content. This is a very popular myth we need to be aware of and be on guard against. Secondly, though, another common myth is that contentment is in the absence of hardship. It's in the absence of hardship. This is similar to the first, but it's more specific This myth believes the lie that difficulty and contentment cannot coexist, that trials and suffering and hardship and burdens are somehow a barrier for us to experiencing contentment and satisfaction in the Lord. I want you just to pause for a moment, and I want you to think about a season of your life that was hard. Maybe it was a trial you went through, a time of suffering, Maybe you're in it right now. And I want you to ask yourself the question, what word best describes the condition of my heart? And would you use the word contentment? I mean, honestly, like think about going through a hard time. Would you have described your heart as being content in Christ? Like I I would guess that for many of us, we probably wouldn't. For many of us, we probably would use a word or phrase like I was just trying to survive. I was just kind of hanging on. Right, But very few of us would say, my heart was content in the midst of that trial. 
I think oftentimes we think it's an impossibility to find contentment in the hard things of life. And for a lot of reasons, that's true. But one reason is that culture almost trains us to avoid hardship at all costs. It's almost like if you have hardship, then there's no way you can be satisfied in life or in the Lord. I think this myth is uh, often reflected in some of our theology. And I don't know if you know this, but a lot of our theology comes out in how we talk. And so just to give you an example, there's a phrase that we use. I'm sure we all have used this and all use this today, uh, where we say that was such a God thing, right? We all, we all have used that. And what we mean by that is we're referring to an event or a situation in life in which we felt like God was particularly involved in, right? You might be late to a meeting or late to picking up kids from school, and you had to stop by the grocery store beforehand, and the parking lot is packed. You can't find a parking spot, but then lo and behold, there's a parking spot that opens up in the front, and we say, ah, that was such a God thing, right? Most of the time, we are using that phrase to almost always refer to good things, positive things in our lives, as if God's sovereignty and God's providence is only over the good things in life and not the hard, right? We need to be careful of those phrases because God is sovereign and and his providence is over all things in life. And I would say, especially the hard things in life. I think it's the hardship of life that becomes this divine classroom in which we learn contentment. It's in the trials of life when things are being stripped away from our heart where we learn that Jesus is enough. So we need to be careful of this myth, thinking that somehow contentment is in the absence of hardship. Thirdly, and I'll be brief with this one, uh, we sometimes believe that contentment is about suppressing desires. All right, sometimes we, we think, okay, the reason why I'm not content is because I continue to experience disappointment because my expectations are too high and my desires are too intense. So I'm going to lower my expectations. I'm going to decrease my desires. And if I experience something that's better than what I expected, then that is the key to contentment, right? Lower the bar of expectations and desires and the reward is contentment. And yet the problem with this is that it only focuses on minimizing your desires for the things of this world and not increasing your desires for Jesus Christ who is the source of our contentment, right? It believes that maybe contentment is all about being stoic or about being contemplative, and it, and it totally dismisses the role of God-given desires that he has uh, given to us. And then fourthly, I think another myth that we need to be careful of is that contentment is primarily about owning less. Now, it's true that true contentment will be demonstrated in your relationship to your stuff, but looking at your possessions is not where true contentment must begin. And the reason why I believe that this is true is because the goal of contentment is not about owning less, but it's about worshiping God more. That contentment is not primarily and first and foremost a things issue or a possession issue, It is a heart issue. That contentment is not about your circumstances. It's what's going on inside of you. That's where we need to begin. 
I think a, a minimalistic lifestyle that's become very popular these days has no power to change your heart and your level of contentment and satisfaction in Christ. Now, after addressing your heart, it will impact what you own and how you view your possessions. But I think believing this myth that contentment is all about what you own will lead you to maybe owning less but not desiring Christ and being satisfied in him more. Okay, so these are just four ways that, or four myths that contentment I think is not. So how do we shatter these myths, right? How do we, how do we create a, a, a right understanding of what contentment is? That I think this is where Philippians 4 um, is really helpful for us. I think Paul describes contentment here in ways that are countercultural, but in ways that it's actually tangible for us to experience as opposed to it just being a mirage. And before I describe um, these uh, aspects of contentment today, I first want to provide maybe a helpful definition as we think about what Christian contentment really is. Here's just a simple one-sentence definition that Christian contentment is experiencing joy in God in all circumstances by yielding to his providential and wise plan for my life. One sentence I think is packed full of things that are really helpful in understanding what contentment is all about. But let me provide you with a better definition. This is from Jeremiah Burroughs in the 1600s. He's the pastor I referenced, Puritan pastor that I referenced last week in his book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Uh, he defines it this way, that Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Right? That's the target. That's the bullseye that we're after. And again, you're seeing some themes here. That contentment finds joy and delight in God in every circumstance, in every condition. That there's an understanding of God's providence, of God's wise plan for my life. And I think definitions are helpful, but to see it embodied in someone is even more helpful. And that's what the Apostle Paul does for us in Philippians 4. So let's see, what, what can we see about contentment? What can we learn from Paul? Here's one thing that we can learn from verse 11, and this is the hardest, is that contentment must be learned. It must be learned. That contentment is not just something that happens to us out of the blue. Contentment is not something that we, that we should be passive about. That contentment is not something that just happens after we read a book about it but it must be learned and pursued and practiced in our own lives. This is what Paul says in verse 11. He says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, he says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. A contentment must be learned because it is a secret. Remember the first time I uh, learned the secret of how to snow ski. I was in my early 20s, and I was uh, interning uh, at a church up in Cleveland. And this church would take the youth group on uh, a retreat, kind of a ski retreat, and talk about the gospel, and it was a big kind of evangelistic event. And I remember uh, arriving there, and the youth pastor I was serving under, serving with, he said, wait, you, you don't know how to ski. We got to teach you today. And I thought, oh, like, this will be easy. Like, I, I played basketball in college. I was in good shape still. Like maybe I'll fall, you know, a couple times, but then I'll eventually get it. 
and got there and got the skis on, which were a lot harder than I thought. And, uh, and I said, okay, which hill are we going to start on? And he said, we're not starting on any hill. Like, if you start on a hill, you will die. <laughs> and I'm like, seriously? Like, th- this, th- this is really that hard? He said, yes, it's a lot harder than what you, than what, than what you think. And, and I remember watching people going down the hill, and, and they were so smooth, and they were stopping on a dime. And I'm like, that looks fairly easy to do. Like, can't we just start there? And he said, no, you need to learn the basics. And so he, he kind of took us to the beginner's area, the beginner's space. It was me and like a bunch of like five-year-olds. And, uh, and he was like, you just need to learn the basics. I'm like, okay, fine. We'll spend a few minutes doing this. And, and I just remember feeling how, how, like being convinced how difficult it was to even just stop. Like I could not stop the entire day. I would just kind of like fall over. And I remember being all bruised on my side and having all these red marks because it was a lot harder than what I thought. I remember hours and hours of just being in the beginners there. I didn't even get up on a hill, like one of those real hills. I remember there was a moment there where I had to intentionally put my pride to the side and take on this learner posture. I remember thinking, okay, I am not going to get this on the first try. I need to place myself under the wisdom of this youth pastor and, and basically absorb everything that he has to say. I remember going, going, over and under, or going over this little hill, and I remember kind of coming back to him and asking him, hey, did, did I do that right? Did I, did I stop the right way? Did I turn at the right angle? And, and I remember just wanting to learn how to ski because I was convinced I wasn't going to understand in one try. I'm going to share that with you because contentment is so very similar. That contentment does not come naturally. The hard thing about contentment is when you see somebody who is actually content, you think to yourself, oh, I can do that. I can, I can be content. I, I can experience that. And yet it is so much harder than what we realize. Contentment has to be learned, pursued, practiced, repeated, maintained. It requires action. Contentment isn't a slow twiddling of the spiritual thumbs but it must involve work. And I, I just want to say something this morning out of love, but I think it needs to be said. I think some of us need to hear this today, is that if you are not content today, that is no one else's problem but your own. That you are not a victim of discontentment. That if you are discontent today, this is not about blaming others or blaming your circumstances. Paul is holding this out before us saying, you can pursue this. You can learn this. You can experience this for yourself, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what other people have said to you. This is a possibility for you to experience. And look, of all the people that could have blamed their circumstances or other people, it it could have been the apostle Paul. I mean, he is literally writing from a prison cell from, from when he's writing Philippians in Philippians chapter four. A guy who was treated so poorly by other people, he was beaten, he was mocked, he found himself uh, oftentimes in a prison cell, and yet he is saying this is something that you can learn and experience for yourself. And I just wonder, could it be God who is using your frustrating, discouraging circumstances as the divine classroom for you to learn the secret of contentment? Could it be God in his wisdom and providential plan for your life to take you under the tutelage of hardship 
in order to teach you that Jesus and Jesus alone is enough for you? Could it be that God is using that boss of yours that is overbearing? Could it be that God is using a strained relationship or misbehaved kids or shattered dreams or tight finances or health issues as divine mechanisms in teaching you what contentment is all about? And I just want to encourage you today to take on a learner posture, to sit under what God has to say about contentment, because I really believe God is constantly teaching us what contentment is all about. So contentment must be learned. But secondly, another important aspect of contentment is that it is rooted in the sufficiency of Christ. It's rooted in the sufficiency of Christ from verse 13 thinking through and kind of following Paul's argument here, if contentment is to be learned, then what do we learn? Well, in a sentence, I think we learn contentment by experiencing the sufficiency of Christ in all things and in every circumstance. It's really interesting. When I was studying this Greek word for contentment throughout the New Testament, I found that it's actually uh, translated in a couple of different ways. It's sometimes translated as sufficient. It's sometimes translated as to be satisfied. But another word that's used for this Greek word for contentment is the word enough. In fact, outside of contentment, the word enough is the most popular used word to translate this Greek understanding. And this is why enough is the title of this sermon series. In trying to pursue and understand this vitally important virtue, we must learn the enoughness of Jesus Christ in our lives. We must be convinced that Jesus is not just icing on the cake in our lives. He is not just an added accessory as if he's this cosmic watch or cosmic scarf that we just kind of add on to our already full lives. No, Jesus is our lives because he is enough. And this is exactly why contentment is not about minimizing your longings, but contentment is all about redirecting them to the person and work of Jesus Christ first and foremost. I love what uh, Jeremiah Burroughs has to say about this idea. He talks about, remember, this is written in the 1600s. He says, my brethren, the reason why you do not have contentment in the things of this world is not that you do not have enough of them, The reason is that they are not things proportional to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. See, what he's saying there is that if you are trying to find contentment in the things of this world, you will never be satisfied. And the reason for that is because the way that God has created each and every one of us is is he's given us these yearnings for eternity. He's given us this this God-sized void in our hearts that can only be satisfied with an eternal God. So you might pursue the things of this world. You might find a little bit of satisfaction, but it's never going to be enough you're going to be pursuing one thing after another, another and having this perpetual longing for more. That true contentment is finding your satisfaction in the sufficiency of Jesus alone. That's the secret of contentment. And to be honest with you, that's exactly what Paul is getting at 
in our favorite verse, but oftentimes ripped out of context verse, Philippians 4.13. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the key to contentment. This is a verse, not about being triumphalistic in your life. This is a verse about the sufficiency of Jesus. And yet oftentimes this verse is taken out of context. I've done it. I, I remember in high school, uh, this was kind of my go-to verse before an exam. And a lot of these exams I just didn't study for. And so I'd get to the exam. I'm thinking, okay, I'm probably going to fail this. But wait, 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 there's a verse in the Bible, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I remember just kind of quoting this as kind of my mantra before this exam, thinking like, surely God is going to be true to his word. Surely God is going to strengthen me and help me ace this test. And yet that never happened once because this verse is not about you and I accomplishing more. It's not you and I being triumphalistic in this life. It is about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in all things, in every circumstance that you face. Because look at the context here. This context is all about understanding that Jesus is enough in every circumstance, in plenty and when you have nothing, when you have abundance and when you are hungry. No matter the circumstance, this verse is talking about finding that Jesus satisfies, Jesus is enough, and Jesus is who strengthens us, that allows us to be content no matter what we face in life. So look, the secret to contentment is placing our ultimate hope in something secure, and that's Jesus Christ and his sufficient grace in every circumstance. There's a very troubling passage in Luke chapter 14. I'm sure you've read it before. This is Jesus is describing what it takes to follow him. This is a haunting passage. Jesus says in verse 26 that in order to follow me, you must hate your father, hate your mother, hate your brother, and hate your sister. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. I remember reading that passage for the first time thinking, what? What in the, I need to hate my family in order to be a Christian? And yet over time, I learned that Jesus is not literally saying to hate your family, but what Jesus is doing there in that passage is he is saying, in comparison to how much you love me, it should look as if that you hate your family. That what Jesus is getting at in that passage is he's talking about the intensity of your satisfaction and your contentment in Christ in comparison to the things that you hold most dear in this world. Jesus is saying, when you compare the two, your family, your career, your finances, whatever else you want to put over here, and you compare your love, your devotion, and your contentment, it should look like nothing in comparison to finding all of that in Jesus. And this is the secret to contentment. Like if God stripped away everything in your life, everything that you hold dear, and all you had was Jesus, the question is, would that be enough for you? And if you can say honestly, yes, in your heart, that's the secret to contentment. Because understanding the sufficiency of Jesus in any and in all circumstance will lead you down the path of contentment. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul experienced 
Man, he experienced some hard things in life, some messed up things. Just read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 of the list of things that he went through. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11 talks about how he went through countless beatings. He had the 40 lashes minus one numerous times. He's beaten with rods. He was shipwrecked three different times, almost starved to death, had sleepless nights in constant danger. And what God was doing in those hardships was stripping away everything in his life so that he could experience the power of Philippians 4.13 and the sufficiency of Jesus. Well, the question for you and the question for me today is, have you learned this secret of contentment? Have you learned the life-changing truth that Jesus and Jesus alone will satisfy? Like, have you experienced for yourself just how good and faithful Jesus is to you? That Jesus is so much better than what we deserve? That Jesus is so gracious to us? The way that Jesus lavishes his unconditional love, not based on any of our doing, not based on our merit, but because he is love, he gives us his love in return. That Jesus is patient with us. He's long-suffering in our process of growth, our process of looking more and more like Jesus. He is there every step along the way, offering us the satisfying grace that we need. Look, have you experienced Jesus for yourself? When we think about who Christ is and the sufficiency of Jesus, the reality is if Christ is not enough for you, then nothing else will be. The next thing that we learn about contentment from this passage is that contentment distinguishes needs from wants. Distinguishes needs from wants. Verses 12 and 19 highlight this. But a lot of our discontentment, a lot of our frustration, a lot of our dissatisfaction springs from confusing needs with wants. That we are oftentimes restless and empty and frustrated, not because our needs aren't being met, but because we're not getting what we want. And if you throw in this entitlement mentality, right, where we, we, are, we feel like we deserve not just our needs, but our wants, that is the recipe for discontentment. But remember, God does not promise to satisfy and give us all of our wants. He promises to give us all of our needs. Look at verse 19. Paul says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so I think as a result, a heart that is content is able to discern the difference between necessities and nice to haves, and as a result, reorients their expectations. So Paul is doing here in this passage and in verse 12, he is determining a difference between abundance and need a difference between plenty and hunger. And then he adjusts his expectations accordingly. So the question for you today is, are you able to distinguish the difference between your needs and your wants? Because sometimes we intermingle them. Sometimes we feel this emptiness, not because our needs aren't being met, but because it's a want that's disguising itself as a need because of what the culture around us is telling us. And if you're able to distinguish the difference, are you telling your heart the difference? Are you speaking into your emotions and your expectations the difference? Because that's huge. And I think one practical way as we're thinking about growing in contentment, when you notice that your heart has become dissatisfied or discontent 
a good question to ask yourself is this. Am I feeling this way because a need isn't being met or because I'm not getting what I want? Right? Am I feeling this way because a need isn't being met or because I'm not getting what I want? And look, if it's a want, that's okay. That's okay to pursue some of the wants and desires that you have. But a good question to ask in that moment is, why do I want this want right now? Or to ask it differently, what do I hope to accomplish when I get what I want? And maybe a good follow-up after that is, am I looking to this want to provide a sense of satisfaction, worth, and purpose that is only reserved for Jesus Christ? Okay, now, you notice what I'm doing here. I'm not only putting in work right now in trying to discern my desires, I'm trying to learn contentment, but I am inspecting and I'm almost interrogating all of my desires and my wants and my needs And look, that might sound exhausting, but as followers of Jesus in this world, we are bombarded with all kinds of temptations, all kinds of options in this world that are trying to convince us to find our satisfaction in them. And sometimes we don't even know that it's happening, that the world does a great job of of allowing us to kind of sleepwalk through this world. And so look, you and I, we need to have a more aggressive posture to discerning the desires that are in our hearts by asking these kinds of specific heart-level questions. In fact, I'd go as far as to say, if you are not inspecting and interrogating your desires, I don't know if contentment is actually possible. So a contented heart is one that's able to distinguish needs from wants. We gotta put in the work. And then lastly here, The fourth one is that contentment is a fruit of godliness. It is a fruit of godliness. Godliness and contentment is intimately connected. They are tied together. They go together like hand and glove. Familiar passage about contentment, 1 Timothy 6. Paul says this. He says that godliness with contentment is great gain. And, uh, excuse me, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But, we have, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Notice Paul says that godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, there is something missing if we do not have contentment. And in addition, I think what he's saying here is that contentment is not possible without godliness. Okay, now why is this relationship important? I think this relationship between godliness And contentment is important because contentment is not primarily about fixing your circumstances. It's all about addressing your heart. That we all are thirsty for this deep, soul-satisfying contentment, but we must pursue godliness as the path in order to experience it in our lives. And this idea of godliness, this is a moment-to-moment choice of walking in the satisfaction of God's grace, God's way. That's godliness. It is looking more and more like Jesus as you are saying no to sin, as you are saying no to temptation, as you are saying no to idolatry. And this is connected with contentment because contentment is always an inside job. It always has to do with what's going on inside of you, not with what's going on outside of you. That the source 
is God and God alone. I think the result of this is being content in Jesus. I want to ask you today as we close, and we're going to sing a few songs, but just where are you today in the journey of contentment? We might be in all kinds of different places, and that's fine. God's going to meet you there. But maybe today you find yourself believing some of these myths of contentment that we looked at earlier, and those need to be corrected. Maybe this morning you're sensing the Spirit of God driving within your heart a desire for Jesus and to pursue the sufficiency of Christ in all things. Look, no matter where he has you today, God promises to give you exactly what you need And he's going to be right beside you on the path of contentment. Continue pursuing it in God's way. Not the mirage from the world, but pursuing contentment the way that the Bible describes it. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your grace. God, we thank you so much that in this journey of contentment that we are not alone. We thank you, God, that you are always working in our lives, helping us to become more content in Christ. God, we confess that there are times in which we are unaware of that. There are times in which we are intentionally, um, Lord, avoiding contentment in you. And so, Lord, I pray that no matter where you find us today, that you would bring conviction where conviction is needed, and that you would give us insight and discernment into the desires of our hearts, that we might funnel them towards Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.